Turn with me to uh, 1 Timothy. If you're a guest with us, we welcome you. We're glad you're here. And um, it's our practice to work our way through different books of the Bible piece by piece. And we've been working through 1 Timothy this year. And we're in chapter 5, verse 21. But I'm going to um, start reading it where the paragraph is. It's in verse 17. If you're using one of our Bibles... Here it's on page 1412, 1412, 1 Timothy 5, 17. I'll read to the end of the chapter, but like I said, we're going to be focusing our attention on uh, verse 21. It reads, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning i solemnly charge you in the presence of god and of christ jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Verse 21 again, let's read that. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. This uh, verse struck me as I was studying through the, this whole passage, this whole chapter, and I felt like uh, it would warrant taking our attention, our sole attention, and as it would so turn out, it, it happens on a communion Sunday. We didn't, I hadn't planned that myself, but maybe the Lord had planned that. For this passage puts our focus up on the Lord and reminds us about some uh, aspects of our life with God that probably we know. We've heard them all before, but, but we need to be reminded. And so I want to look at six reminders that are in this verse about God. And, of course, that will then reflect on our walk with God. The first reminder is the character of God. This passage reminds us something about something important concerning the character of God. Notice he's charged Timothy. This is the Apostle Paul charging Timothy, um, and he very solemnly, we'll look at those words in a minute, but then he says, to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. That word bias there has the idea of prejudging, where a person would come to a situation, he's, he or she has already made up their mind. They've already prejudged the person or the situation. That's what that, that word means. And he's saying, 
that Timothy, Timothy, Paul is saying, you can't come into these situations where you might have to deal with issues concerning the elders in the church having prejudged people. You can't walk into situations already having made up your mind about what the outcome is. So there's no prejudging allowed. And then it says, do nothing in a spirit of partiality. We need to treat everyone the same. You don't... Um, cut some slack to some people because they're your friends you don't treat some a little uh, less stringently because you like them without bias and nothing in a spirit of partiality as I was looking at this passage I I began to think to myself that surely with this strong language that's here in the beginning of verse 21 I mean look Look at that. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels. I mean, whatever he's getting ready to say is important, right? And then he says, he talks about this issue and about not being biased or not having a spirit of partiality. And I thought to myself, this must be speaking to us about something deep in the character and the heart of God himself. Otherwise, it wouldn't be stated like this. Listen to a few other verses I found in the scripture. I'll read them quickly. You don't have to try to follow me in your Bible. But listen to Romans 2.11. It says, quite plainly and matter of fact, for there is no partiality with God. That's in a passage where the Apostle Paul is talking about the the difference between the Jews and the non-Jew. But he gets to the the point, and one of his points is, God doesn't treat the Jews differently than the non-Jews. He doesn't treat the non-Jews differently than the Jews. There's no partiality with God. And part of his point in that passage is, we've all blown it, we're all sinners, and there's one way back to God. Amen? And it's not something different for one group of people and then another. He treats us all the same. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, he's talking to masters, or it could be taken with us, employers. He says, and masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening. He says, don't, don't just threaten your, your employees, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. God treats us all the same. He doesn't bend the rules because he likes one guy or one lady more than the other. It's all the same, and therefore that's going to impact how we treat other people. In Colossians 3.25, it reminds us, now it starts to put our attention into our own judgment day with God in light of the fact that God is impartial. It says, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. In Acts chapter 10, Peter, strong and very faithful and... and um, a very um, exacting Jewish man. But now he's a disciple of Christ and Christ is risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, commissioned him along with the other disciples to go out. Now they're apostles and he still had this, he still had a couple hurdles to get over in terms of relating to non-Jews. 
And it took a vision from God that <laughs> came down to get him interacting with the Gentiles the way he ought. And then when he did, he saw that God visited them with the gifting of the Holy Spirit, just like he had gifted the Jews. Those who believed in Christ were treated the same. And he opened his mouth, it says, in Acts 10, 34. And Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Back in the Old Testament, it teaches the same in Deuteronomy 10, 17. Listen to this verse. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. Interesting, isn't it? This great, awesome God who is so far above all other beings that he can't be put in the same category with them. In his awesomeness, then, though so crucial to understanding who God is, the writer of Deuteronomy says, and he does not show partiality, he doesn't take a bribe. We're reminded of the character of God, that there is no partiality with him. He's not a human being. He's not a judge like some of ours that can uh, receive a briefcase full of fresh, clean $100 bills and maybe make the outcome of the court case a little different than it should have been. This is a judge who shows no partiality. He will judge according to his own righteousness and holiness, and that is the only thing You know, you and I have no hope in influencing God to overlook our sins. You can't do something just so good that God will change his standard of righteousness for you in the judgment day. Did you know that? You can't twist his arm. Well, we we pretty much know that. We can't force him to cut us some slack on the judgment day. But, but we entertain this notion, many of us, that if I just do some really good stuff to people that don't deserve it, maybe he'll, he'll wink a little bit when it comes to judging me. But friends, that is not the God that this book speaks of. Our God has no partiality. He is faithful and true to himself, and that's how he judges and so I, ho- I hope, I trust, that as you think about the end of your own life and the fact that at the end you will be given an account to the one who created you, that you're entertaining no notion at all that somehow something that you're doing will kind of make him be a little lenient with you. There is no such thing, none at all. And also, another way of applying this fact to our lives has to do with then how we treat other people. If you want, um, turn with me to James chapter 2. I want you to see this. It's on page 1435. James chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. It's a great thing to be in a church where when the pastor says, turn somewhere, you hear all the pages rustling. It's a great thing. James chapter 2, verse 1. 
He says, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Now, skip down to verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The fact that God is a God who shows no partiality means that those who follow him, who say, I'm in with Christ, He's reconciled me with God. I'm going to follow him. We must live this way with other people, not prejudge people and not show partiality to anyone. Well, we're reminded in this passage again in 1 Timothy 5, 21, about the character of God. Secondly, we're also reminded about the awesomeness of God. Now, the problem now is, is that we can't use the word awesome anymore because it's not awesome anymore. Have you noticed that? You know, everybody, we all say, I'm, I do it too, but, you know, oh, that's awesome. And um, I was trying to find a different word to use, and I realized that actually this is a really good word. It's just that we've forgotten what it means. It means this is something that puts awe into us. Look at 1 Timothy 5.21 again. It says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels. It's very interesting. Um, in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy, he makes, Paul makes a few charges like this to Timothy. Look at 1 Timothy 6.13. He uses very similar language. And I think that you'll see, we, we learn a little bit as we look at these other places where Paul said, I solemnly charge you. We, we pick up on what his meaning is here. In 1 Timothy 6.13, he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. So you see, when he's saying, I charge you uh, in the presence of God, He's thinking of this is the one who has created you. This is the one who out of nothing, he made you. Amen. He's not in the same category as you. Everything that exists in the universe, intelligent beings or inanimate beings, all of us are in one category And then in another category is God. He gave life to all things. He's the one that actually gave us life. Then look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1. Very interesting. So you just keep turning. 2 Timothy 4 verse 1. 
similar words, but he adds something so that you know what he's talking about back here in 1 Timothy 5. You know what he's talking about because of this in 2 Timothy 4. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. When, when Paul is speaking to Timothy and he's saying, I'm charging you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, he's, he's, he's foreshadowing something that's going to come. He's saying Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. He's going to appear again. He's coming again. His kingdom will come to fruition there in the future. There is a, there is a, a trajectory that human history is on. We're all moving on it towards an end that he has planned. And he's the judge and we're going to be held accountable for our lives. And this is awesome. This is the one, we, he gave us life, and he's going to judge our life, and we ought to feel some awe in this. And then, if you look back again at 1 Timothy 5, 7, uh, 21, that, that verse, the, he adds this little phrase, and of his chosen angels. This is one you want to go, what in the world does that mean? In the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, and of his chosen angels well i'll just say this quickly that uh there's no way i could go through all the verses but sprinkled through the bible you see that in the end in the end in the end times when this judgment comes the angels are spoken of as being present i'll read one passage to you it's in second thessalonians Chapter 1, verse 7 to 10. Just listen to this. I, I, I'm dropping into the middle of a sentence, but I'll, I'll start there and read. It says, And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven. So Jesus is coming back. It says, With his mighty angels. There are the angels. But then he goes on and he explains. When Christ comes back, with his mighty angels, it says, in flaming fire. This is awesome. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. Jesus Christ is coming with the angels. He's going to bring human history to, to its focal point. He will be exalted duly as he ought. All who have rejected the gospel will go to eternal punishment. And the angels, and we don't know all the details, described as is coming in, fl- as in flaming fire, they will be present in all of this. And my friends, we will be in awe. Amen? We will be in awe. And this passage is reminding us of the awesomeness of God. And I was thinking about that just in terms of, well, how should we apply that to our lives? And, and I thought that, that when we gather together on a Sunday morning to sing or any other time to sing, 
Worship to him. It's, it's difficult. I confess. It's, it's difficult at times. We come in and we, we've got other things on our mind. Uh, we're distracted. Um, uh, but, but if we can ask God to help us to look at him and to remember who he is and to think about his awesomeness and then to unite our hearts within us and then with those around us to sing and worship and adore him. You know, it says here in that Thessalonians verse that when he comes, it says when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all those who have believed, we're going to be doing a lot of marveling in that day. Amen? Well, let's start now. Let's start now and marvel at who our God is. Well, I'm not going to be able to finish you know i have six points to this sermon i told the other pastors that this morning i said six points and one of them said and on a communion sunday i said right we need prayer today the rest are going to go a little faster third reminder the presence of god we've looked at the character of god the awesomeness of god but the presence of god look again at first timothy 521 i solemnly charge you in the presence of god and of Christ Jesus. And this is amazing. This is amazing that this great, awesome God, the giver of life, the judge of all of us, the one who, who made the, the universe and the universes, <laughs> he's actually present with us. And he wants to be. And he is. We can take this as a reminder in our own lives perhaps there are times and we all have those times where we're going through life and sometimes it's it's uh, when certain difficulties hit us and we begin to think that maybe he's not with us we don't feel his presence and sometimes it's at the beginning of a of a trial that just hits us hard and we wonder where where were you god where, where, how come this happened to me but sometimes it can be that as the trial extends and the days turn to weeks and the weeks turn to months and then even the months turn to years and satan can work on us and we begin to wonder lord are you with me but we remember here Paul is saying to Timothy, the Lord is with you. You are in the presence of God. Trust him for this. Use this as a reminder. If you're finding yourself at a place in your life where, where the, you're beginning to doubt or you just don't feel that presence, then take this verse and say, Lord, I, I want to feel your presence again. Amen. Just go to God and say, Lord, you are present Help me to sense your presence. On the other hand, this is also not only a comfort to us, it's a warning to us. It's a warning because we need to behave. Because God is present. And when no one else is around and no one sees what you're doing, God is present and he sees what you are doing. John Flavel, uh, my favorite theologian pastor of the past, He said one time that eternity is in every moment. And what he meant by that, it's a very heavy statement. And when you think on it, you could crumble under it unless you know the grace of God. That every every moment 
is just a moment to you and me and you say a careless word or you think an unclean thought or you do a rebellious thing and you you do something that is wrong. It's just a moment, but eternity is in it because in the end you will be held accountable for it. We need to live right because because God is present with us. Fourth reminder, which this leads right into it, is we're reminded by this passage, 1 Timothy 5, 21, we are reminded about the judgment of God. I've already spoken about it. The Second Timothy passage is the one that makes it clear that Paul intended that to be part of his meaning here in First Timothy 5. Second Timothy 4, 1, I'll read it again. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. You see, Jesus Christ is coming back, and we are going to be held accountable. And you know, even though it might frighten you, personally that your life is going to be held accountable you are going to be held accountable for it before god you know if you pause for a moment and think you know that this must be the case this has to be right for all of the evil and the injustice the oppression the abuse that occurs in our in our in our Lives and in, in, in this world and all through human history. Is God going to watch it all and not call people to account for what they have done? He is going to call people to account. He is going to make it all right. It must be. That's why in the, in the Psalms, in one of the Psalms, it says that the, the, the forest claps for joy. The, the mountains leap and there's cries of joy because it says, for the Lord is coming. And, and we think, yeah, that's great. That's great. And, and then it goes on and says, he is coming to judge. And on the surface, you might think, what? We're all excited that he's going to judge. We're kind of afraid that he's going to judge. But no, you see, this is who God is. And you don't have to know very many people, maybe in your own life, people who have been misused by other people, the evil that is in this world. I praise God there's a judgment day. For it all will be set straight. And nobody will get away with anything. The perpetrators of evil, the evil of which it's not even, I don't even want to mention it this morning. They get away with it only for a time. And then it will be made right. And so we worship him and praise him for the judgment. And yet, my judgment Wait a minute, I'm not righteous enough. I can't bribe them. If I could, I'd try. We already learned that. So how am I going to be made? How am I going to get through this? For no one, no one passes the test when the grade is him. His holiness is what we're all judged up against. And there's no curves in this test. You, it's, you pass or you fail. That's where the grace of God comes in. Amen? It's Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus came. He came. God sent him. And he sent his sinless, spotless son. And he went, Jesus went to the cross. 
And on the cross, he suffered the punishment that I, the sinner, deserved. And he died. And then he rose from the dead. And now he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, even rest for your souls. Jesus says, go to him in faith and you escape the judgment. And so I did. (laughs) And a lot of you have too. Amen. Amen. And I would say to any of you that if you haven't run to Jesus Christ by faith and just clung to him and say, you save me. You save me from the judgment that is coming. I trust in you to do it. You can do that. You can do that this morning. There's no magic words. You just run to him in your heart and say, I trust you and what you did on the cross to to enable me to escape this judgment and follow him. The judgment of God. And by the way, that's what communion is all about is that we're remembering with the bread and with the cup that it's our Savior Jesus Christ that enables us to escape that judgment. Amen? He was punished for our sin. We're proclaiming, the scripture says, his death until he comes by taking communion. Well, now, fifth, a fifth um, reminder. The example of Christ. Now, this is very interesting. How, what do I mean by this? He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Now, there was, I mentioned it quickly. First Timothy 6.13 is another solemn charge. And it adds something interesting. It says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. We've spoken about that, but it keeps going. And it says, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Briefly, there is Jesus suffering and he's put on, he's put there in that moment. And he must, as a, as a human, he is God and he is human. He must remain faithful and true to the end. He must testify the good confession before Pontius Pilate, and he does, even though it means more suffering and horrendous suffering. The example of Christ is that you live and you do what's right, even when what's right is difficult to do. And so when Paul is saying to Timothy, hey, in terms of all this stuff with the elders, you, 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 I'm charging you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. You, you do this all without partiality or bias. He's reminding Timothy that his Savior Jesus did the right thing even when it was difficult. So Timothy, you do the right thing even when it's difficult. He's being reminded of the example of Christ. Perhaps you this morning have some difficult thing that God is asking you to do. God, the spirits nudged you and put you in a place where you think, well, I really should do this, but I really don't want to. This is going to hurt or this is going to be hard or they're not going to like me when I have to say this or whatever it is. Remember the example of Jesus Christ there battered and bruised before the authorities. He did what was right down to his last breath. So you do it too. Amen? You do it too. Lastly, sixth reminder, and this is 
about the importance of the church. This is unbelievable. If you, if you look at 1 Timothy 5.21, uh, this, the words, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his holy angels. And you think, my word, what is he getting ready to say? What's he going to charge him? He says, just make sure you work things out with the elders the right way. You think, what? That's all he was going to say. Well, that just shows that we don't look at church the way God looks at church. I'm running out of time, so I can't read all these verses. But I went back and I started to look at all the places in in the New Testament where this word solemnly charged was used. Unbelievable. It's all it's mostly it's all about the gospel and, and it's about the truths of how to be saved. That 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 you must you must solemnly charge people about the truth about Jesus Christ that you can you can be be ransomed out you can be reconciled with god you can be delivered from the judgment that's to come with this solemn message about jesus christ that's that's what it's talking about and the most dramatic one was in luke 16 where lazarus you remember jesus is telling this story lazarus is suffering in hell and he's imploring abraham he's saying would you just put a drop of water on my tongue he said i can't do it and he says well listen he says then i beg you father he says in verse 27 that um just send somebody to my father's house he says for i have five brothers in order that he may solemnly charge them there's the word so that they will not also come to this place of torment this is a person in hell who's saying just send somebody or let me go for a minute and solemnly warn my brothers you don't want to come here that's the word that's being used and yet it's being used here about Paul making sure that Timothy makes sure that the elders are all arranged right and function right in the church. (laughs) We don't look at the church the way God looks at the church. We, we think of it at times like a theater. You know, you come, you watch, you go. Or we think of it as an event or, or the worst is we think of church as a building, (laughs) building is where the church meets it's it's not the church we think of the church as some kind of civic or community organization but god looks at the church as his body of believers where his glory and his person is going to be reflected out to the world and to the angels who are watching and so there is a great importance to the church and us being related rightly to it Six reminders here about God. The character of God, no partiality. The awesomeness of God, the presence of God, the judgment of God, the example of Christ, and then the importance of the church. Let's bow our heads and pray. And as we do, gentlemen, you can get ready to help us with communion. Father, We thank you for this text of scripture. We ask your forgiveness for for thinking too lightly of you and of your design for the church, 
for thinking too carelessly about sin in our own lives. Cleanse us, Lord, we pray. And restore in us and renew in us a great awe of you. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your coming judgment. For all evil will be turned upside down. No one will escape or get away with anything. And Lord, you will be magnified. And thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ is come. And in his suffering on the cross, we find release and redemption. We're reconciled to you. We've escaped the judgment that is to come because the judgment that is to come came and fell on him. We praise you and we thank you. And we ask that you would be with us now and touch us, speak to us, commune with us in this communion service. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.